ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Moxie Bets. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Katie Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Bets. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about... Well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Andrew Marinus, and my dilemma is living and dying with the Milwaukee Brewers, which has been a tough proposition my entire life. They've only been to the World Series one time, and I'm hoping this will be the, the year they go back. Ah, Brewers fans, what a delightfully sensitive bunch. You know, I try to be respectful of fans. I understand that I surely would be a fan of another team had I been born or raised elsewhere. Uh, But, you know, there are certain fan bases that rile me up, and the Brewers are one of them. There's just no playful rivalry between Cubs fans and Brewer fans. You know, if I crack a joke about Cubs fans filling up their stadium, they lose their minds. If I say mention that the Brewers have never won the World Series, I watch my Menchies light a fire. It's truly exhausting. I'm just trying to have a little playful back and forth with our neighbors to the north. Now, that being said, super rad logo. The M and the B becoming the mitt. I love it. I also am a huge fan of the sausage races. So for your sake, uh, I hope that the hater trade pays off. I hope they have a good run. Do I want them to win the World Series? Mm, I can't go that far. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Quick little story time I'm going to give you to set up this week's guest and, and his really great book, Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. So a couple months ago, certain Tampa Bay Rays players refused to wear the team's Pride Night uniforms. And one of the five players who opted out, Jason Adam, explained their decision this way, quote, A lot of it comes down to faith, like a faith-based decision. So it's a hard decision because ultimately we all said we want is them to know that they're all welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who has encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior. We love these men and women. We care about them, and we want them to feel safe and welcome here. Yeah, the old love the sinner, hate the sin. A saying that is still rooted in hate and honestly can't be reconciled with ideals of goodness, with love thy neighbor as thyself, judge not lest you be judged, etc. It's just intolerance and bigotry masking itself as faith. Intolerance asking to be excused. And worse yet, Adam clearly hasn't even tried to engage with folks about the issue if he's still using words like lifestyle and behavior, which are antiquated and offensive and usually dog whistles for homophobia. Being gay or queer isn't a lifestyle. So judging, discriminating against, or refusing to support LGBTQ plus inclusion is no different than refusing to participate in, say, Jackie Robinson Day. Every time we treat religion like a third rail and say we disagree but, quote, respect someone's decision to use faith as a shield for their intolerance, we allow it to continue. And we need to start treating hobophobes just like racists and other bigots. So I said a bit of what I've said here uh, the day that the news came out about the raise on Around the Horn, and I ended up dealing with weeks of harassment and even death threats, very Christian, uh, for speaking my mind about inclusion. And the ordeal reminded author Andrew Moranis to follow up with me about his book and his request to come on the podcast and talk about a true trailblazer in Major League Baseball, Glenn Burke, a man who had, the day before the Rays' Pride Night stance, been honored posthumously by the Dodgers, for whom he was an outfielder and the first major leaguer to come out as gay. It was time, said Moranis, to talk about Glenn Burke, and he was right. So here we are talking about a tremendous ball player, beloved teammate, the man who invented the high five, helped bring the Nike brand to baseball, and taught many of his teammates to love and support a gay man in the clubhouse. Unfortunately, he was ultimately run out of baseball by cowardly execs and suffered a tragic and deeply sad death. But uh, his story is one that needs to be told. 
especially as we are continuing to confront these issues decades later. So a little bit more about Andrew Moranis, New York Times bestselling author of narrative nonfiction for teens and adults. He focuses on the intersection of sports and social justice in his books, and he's written several award-winning books, including Strong Inside and Games of Deception. Now, of course, this incredible book, and coming in September, Inaugural Ballers, the true story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team. Love talking to him about Glenn Burke's remarkable life. Enjoy. That's what she said. Excited to talk to Andrew Marinus. And the book Singled Out is fantastic. And while it came out last year, we didn't have a chance to talk about it until now. And it's feeling all the more relevant with conversations that we're having um, about social issues and their intersection with sport. So it makes tons of sense to talk about it now. But before we get to Singled Out, I want to start with uh, setting up who you are for folks who might not know. And your childhood sounds fascinating. You moved around a lot for your father's job. He was a writer as well. But uh, tell me about the lineage even before your dad. It sounds like you were you really had no choice but to get into writing. Yeah, I had no choice at all. My um, grandparents, my grandfather, Elliot, was a newspaper editor in Madison, Wisconsin. His wife, my grandmother, Mary, was a book editor at the University of Wisconsin Press. And so that was passed on to my dad, who's been a journalist his entire career. My mom actually is the first person in our family to write a book. She wrote an activity book for kids on protecting the ocean and, and marine oh, life. Cool. So, yeah, I had no choice. Yeah. So your dad's been an associate editor of The Washington Post since 1977, which, by the way, that is an extremely long time to hold any job. But I'm just trying to imagine what a fascinating person he must be to have been in that position and to be on top of the news for that many decades, um, won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting in 93 for coverage of Bill Clinton's candidacy during the election. So um, very uh, lofty goals for you as a writer. And it did mean you moved around a lot. So let's talk about that. Where are the places that you lived growing up? <laughs> All right. So I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. My parents were sophomores uh, when I was born. Uh, so sophomores I, I was right in college? What's that? Yes. Sof oh, my gosh. So young. Okay. Yeah, so you, you've been to Madison, you know, the beautiful yeah. union right there on the, uh, they lived in an apartment building looking over the lake there when I so that's where I was born. That's why I'm still a Brewers Packers Bucks uh, fan. We moved when I was four to New Jersey. Uh, my dad worked at the Trenton Times, which was owned by the Washington Post at that time and was treated kind of like their farm system. They would send young reporters there and then he got called up to the post. So we moved to D.C., like you mentioned, in uh, 77 which interestingly was right around the time that um, I guess all the president's men movie was being made. And so my dad remembers Robert Redford coming in and, and talking to uh, Woodward, you know, and nice all the women, you know, <laughs> attracted to him and yeah. that office. So um, I grew up mostly in DC. We moved to Austin, Texas when I was in high school. Uh, the post had a Southwest bureau back when newspapers had like bureaus around the country. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was lucky and got a sports writing scholarship to Vanderbilt. And uh, that's why I ended up moving here to Nashville, where I've been uh, ever since college, with the exception of one year in St. Pete, Florida, working for the Tampa Bay Rays during their inaugural season. Yeah, I mean, you started writing when you were young. You were editor for the school paper in high school, the mm -hmm. Austin High Maroon, um, then an intern for the Austin American Statesman, Statesman got that scholarship that took you to, to Vanderbilt. So. Uh, what was it about sports writing that appealed to you early on? Why did you go that direction? Um, I mean, I'm a typical kid who always loved sports. I learned how to read by reading the back of baseball cards. Um, that same grandfather he mentioned, he got me the 1975 Tops set. And I remember sorting those cards into different piles by teams or color of their hats or whatever. Um, a couple years after that, I wrote like a pre-baseball preview um, talking about the players. I was a Phillies fan. We lived in Trenton and Dave Cash was my favorite player. I remember his card where he was backhanding the ball. And I just thought mm -hmm. that was cool. Um, you know, and then reading uh, my dad's articles in the paper every day, like reading and the news was a big part of, of my childhood experience. Um, when I was in middle school, I started my own sports magazine. It was called <laughs> uh, AJ's Sports Journal. And I wrote nice. about the uh, Packers firing Bart Starr and how that was a bad decision, which, you know, actually was a good decision. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You were then, young. You were allowed a couple a couple mulligans. A couple mulligans. Thank <laughs> you. And then um, my dad was friends with John Feinstein. And at that point, Feinstein hadn't gone into writing books about sports yet. He was a, actually a like a Metro reporter, um, but he was the first person I interviewed. And I interviewed him um, because he was he was a big fan of uh, college basketball, obviously, and 
someone that I knew liked sports, you know, and so he was the first person that I ever interviewed. And awesome. I still have this magazine. I tried to sell it for $1.75 <laughs> and nobody bought it. Uh, so that was a lesson, I guess, in the future of sports media too. Right. right, but, right, um, right. Uh, when we were in Austin for high school, I, I played baseball. And I, like you mentioned, I was sports editor of our paper and it's just what I like to do. And I, I was more into the um, sports side of things, you know, in my books, I've gotten into using sports as a way to talk about other issues. But really, at the time, I was just a big sports guy. And, and living in D.C., um, we had season tickets to Georgetown basketball back when Patrick Ewing, uh, you know, was the star. So that was so exciting. I just always felt like going to games was the most excitement that you could possibly experience. You know, and walking in to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore and through the portal and then seeing the green grass out there on the field and playing baseball and the tension and the excitement that came with that. I just felt like, why wouldn't you want to be around this? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I love um, the idea of you creating your own paper. It feels like that's sort of, it's a vibe for a lot of people who ended up going on to do that. Mina Kimes, uh, one of my colleagues at ESPN had the Kimes Times. Uh, (laughs) My sister and I tried to sell advertising in a paper we were going to call Sunny Side Up that was going to be a variety of things, cartoons and writing and whatever. And so we went around to local places in in the town that I grew up in. And uh, they very wisely said, why don't you let us know when you've got a full paper, um, you know, your first product, and then we'll see if it's something we want to advertise. And then, of course, we kind of like lost interest very shortly right. after that, and it never happened. So they were very smart to do that and not give us their money. Um, but I love the idea of like wanting to create from this from this very young age. Yeah. So you uh, you end up getting this box uh, scholarship to Vanderbilt, and I I read that the name of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> at Vanderbilt I think it came was first, by the way, the yeah. hustler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure it has a storied history, <laughs> but I'm curious if on your resume, you would be sure to point out that the hustler was in fact the Vanderbilt paper and not a different publication yeah, or, right. or did you just leave it to their imagination and keep <laughs> job opportunities more out open? Was <laughs> Vanderbilt hustler. Um, I think the photographers for the hustler had probably a harder time <laughs> dealing with that <laughs> right, on their resumes, right. you know, but right. it would be fun to show up, you know, like a football game at Ole Miss and that just said hustler and that's yes. where you would go sit, you know, love it. Love right. it. Okay. So, so you, uh, you're the sports editor at the hustler and mm-hmm. then you decide to stick around at Vanderbilt. So tell me about the work you did there for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, it was my first job out of school. It was awesome. I was obviously a fan having been an alum and I was the sports information director for the men's basketball team here. It was Eddie Fogler's um, last season as the head coach here and then Jan Van Bertikoff's uh, years. And so, you know, it was a great experience. I always say it was the hardest that I worked in my life, um, being 22, 23, 24 years old and working with the SEC basketball team, traveling with them. And there was a lot of media that covered the games back then. It was obviously pre-social media. So, you know, you didn't, I wasn't on Twitter or anything like that, but writing press releases, writing every single word of copy for the media guide, actually taking the photos for the media guide, using the snipping (laughs) tool, you know, on Photoshop, like there was no uh, department that did that. You did everything yourself. And I remember for baseball and you think about Vandy baseball now is one of the best teams in the country. Back then they weren't so good. And there, there was no stadium to speak of. There was no press box. I would sit at a card table on the first base dugout holding a microphone up to a boom box with my own CDs in it to play the music between innings <laughs> while I was also the uh, official scorer and dealing with any media who happened to show up. So, I mean, it, you were getting to do everything. So it was great experience. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, you know, at the time, did you think, oh, this is what I'd like to do? I'd like to stay in a collegiate atmosphere or maybe even go to the pros. Did you think you wanted to work for a team? I always wanted to work in Major League Baseball. Um Playing baseball growing up, first, I wanted to be a shortstop for the Brewers, you know, and then when I realized that wasn't going to happen, I wanted to work in baseball. Uh, And so I applied to every team when I was a senior in college, got rejected by every team, but was excited to get those rejection letters on the letterhead of the teams. You know, I thought that was cool. I still have those those letters. Um, And then during that time I was working at Vandy, I, you know, would continue to sort of uh, try And I remember when the Diamondbacks and the Rays teams were uh, awarded, I figured, well, they don't have any staff, you know, so maybe I have a chance. And I applied um, to both teams 
I don't know if you know Rick Vaughn, who was the longtime communications guy for the Rays and previously with the Orioles and the Redskins. He was looking for someone with a college background that he could kind of train in the ways that he wanted, you know, not someone that was already working in the majors. And so I was really fortunate to get hired to work with uh, Tampa Bay during their first season, which was the 98 season. Why just one year with the Rays? Uh, personal. Um, I was engaged. And it's always my, a girl. Yeah. Always. <laughs> <laughs> my fiance back in Nashville um, had just started her own graphic design business and wasn't eager to move to Florida. I saw my dream job. So it was a really difficult decision even to take it. And we decided that I would try for a year and then see how it went. And either she would come to Florida or I would come back to Nashville. And so I decided I was not going to choose a job over a person. I came back to Nashville and that marriage only lasted two years. So maybe mm, I, I, no. I should have stayed. Who knows? But no, I, it was it's all worked out in the end. I have a, a wonderful uh, wife now and two great kids. So I'm, it all worked out in the end. When you came back to Nashville um, after that year with the Rays, you worked for a PR firm. Was that an intentional pivot or was that here's a job I found that's where I need to be for this gal? <laughs> that's a great question. A, a little bit of both. So I knew that um, this firm was started by um, mostly former journalists. And so I felt like they had the, it wasn't going to be too sleazy, <laughs> you know, right, right. Um, they were uh, some other um, worked in democratic campaigns. Uh, I liked the people there. They, they worked with uh, bringing the Houston Oilers to Nashville. Um, so they had some sports in their portfolio, but really, no, I didn't set out to have a job in the public relations field outside of sports, uh, but it, it was a career that I had for 18 years. Um, yeah. While I was there, I met my wife that I'm uh, married to now and um, also missed sports so much. And so this is probably leading to your next question, but it was while I was working there that I came back to a project I had worked on in school for a black history class to write my first book. Yeah. So you decide while you're doing the PR gig, you're going to revisit sports writing in the form of a of a full book that you did sort of in and out while still working a full time job. And that job, uh, that book, Strong Inside, Perry Wallace and the Collision of Race and Sports in the South. Um, Perry Wallace was the first African-American to play college basketball under a scholarship in the SEC, Vanderbilt, uh, back in the 60s. And your book ended up being on The New York Times bestseller list for months at a time, won a bunch of awards. and was even uh, given as the book of choice for incoming freshmen for Vanderbilt for a couple of years very recently. So what was it about that story that inspired you to say, first of all, I want to write a book as opposed to uh, continuing more short form and uh, and that made you think that there was enough there to tell a, a really great story? Yeah, well, Perry Wallace was just an incredible person. When I was a sophomore in college, there was an article uh, you may know Dave Shinen, a sports writer at the Washington yeah. Post. He was a year ahead of he me. He and I Dave. had the uh, great honor of sharing the uh, Dan Jenkins Sports Medal a couple years ago. Uh, oh, in that Texas. Fairly, fairly new award. Um, and and we uh, we were co-winners, so we got to share that together. Oh, congratulations. And uh, Dave's a great guy. He was a year ahead of me at Vanderbilt. And he wrote an article for um, a campus literary magazine about Perry Wallace, who was just being invited back to campus for the first time, 20 years after he graduated, I was a sophomore. I had never heard of Perry Wallace before. And Dave wrote a great lead to the story about Perry's first game at Mississippi State and the uh, tension in the air. Um, you can imagine being the first black player to play in Starkville, Mississippi. And so right. I was taking a black history class and we had a, a paper assignment about to be due. And I didn't know what to write about. And when I saw that article, I, I thought, well, I want to ask my professor if I can write about Perry and his experience as uh, Jackie Robinson of the SEC for this class. And I was really concerned that she was going to say no, you know, that we don't write about sports in college. That's not serious enough uh, subject to write about a basketball player for this class. And thankfully she said, no, if that's what you're interested in, that's what you should do. And so that uh, experience of having uh, interviewed Perry for that class paper, learning a little bit about um, the fact that he thought he was going to get shot and killed just for mm. stepping onto the basketball court 
stuck with me as the most interesting thing that I ever did in college. And it stayed on my mind. You mentioned my dad, he's written 12 or 13 books now. And so wow. I saw that keep example. Up. <laughs> yeah. And he can't do anything else, you know, so, right? <laughs> like, typical dad. Right. So um, I saw that example in my own family of someone who had written a book. And so I thought, well, maybe someday I could write a book too. And I was, I proclaimed to my future father-in-law that I want to write a book. And he asked an obvious question, well, what about, and I was stumped. And then he said, well, um, what about Perry? You're always talking about Perry Wallace. And so that right then I was like, yes, I've got to do it. And I just felt like, what if no one had ever written a book about Jackie Robinson? That, that would be a crime. Right. And so Perry's story in some ways, not to diminish Jackie Robinson's story at all, but in some ways Perry's was even more difficult. I mean, being in the deep South all alone, in these uh, hostile environments, a couple years, you know, he's playing at Alabama a couple years after um, governor standing in the schoolhouse door. He's playing at Ole Miss a couple years after the riots that accompanied James Meredith. You know, um, he's existing on the Vanderbilt campus for four years where he said he, the loneliness and isolation he felt on his own campus was more difficult than traveling to Starkville, Mississippi or Oxford, Mississippi. And so, and Perry, by this time uh, that I wrote the book, was a professor of law at American University uh, in D.C. Mm. He spoke multiple languages. He was fluent in French so much that he taught law classes in the summer in France to French students. Wow. Uh, he sang opera. He was a black belt in karate. He was total Renaissance man who, who upended any stereotype and every stereotype that people had right. uh, about him his entire life. And so for me, to, the chance to spend years interviewing him, it took me eight years to write this book, was the best education I ever could have gotten on racism and human nature and the toll of pioneering. You know, we all celebrate pioneers, but what does it really take out of that individual right. who's put in the spot of doing it? And so I just felt like it, there was a ton there for a book beyond basketball. Vanderbilt wasn't very good the four years that he played there, so it's not really a story, a typical sports story of like leading to a championship or something like that. It's, it's deeper, I think, and more significant than that. And, um, you know, Perry is just the wisest person that I, that I ever mm -hmm. met. And I just tried to get out of the way, let him tell his story. It's such a clear through line to singled out, which we'll get to in a second. There's so many parallels there, but um, it feels like that's where you found your niche, which is sort of sports against the backdrop of something else. Um, Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. So just quickly, what drew you to that? How did you decide that that was going to be your next book? Yeah, well, you know, and first with Strong Inside, I initially wrote it for adults. It's a, a big, thick book. Then uh, I adapted it for middle school and high school kids. So there's a young adult version of it, too. And when I was um, traveling around to different schools around the country, uh, talking to kids about that book, I recognize this is what I want to do with the rest of my writing career is write books that kind of straddle the line between young adult and adult so that kids like me, uh, you know, maybe if you're a teenager who loves sports, but you haven't really discovered that you like books yet, that this can mm -hmm. be the type of book for you and that you also learn something more significant along the way. So I was in Kansas uh, speaking about Strong Inside, visited Allen Fieldhouse. I'd never been there before. That was someplace I really wanted to go. And while I was there, I took a tour. I don't know if you've been to Allen Fieldhouse. They have a phenomenal museum, the history of Kansas basketball, and they won an auction to have the uh, original rules of basketball. So James Naismith's actual pieces yeah. of paper yeah, yeah. with the rules of basketball. And right next to it, there's a picture of Naismith with a Japanese basketball player in the 1930s. Man showing me around said, did you realize the inventor of basketball was able to see his sport played at the Olympics? I, I didn't know that, you know, and he, I said, well, which Olympics was it? And when he said it was the Nazi Olympics in 36, right then I realized, well, that would be a, a great book. This the invention yeah. of basketball, how it spreads around the world fast enough for the inventor to see it played in the Olympics against that backdrop of um, the rise of fascism. I know that students, you know, they're fascinated by the inventor of the game. There's tons of papers that I would see in posters about Naismith. They're fascinated by Nazi Germany. Um, they, you know, assigned books about that era in history. And I thought bringing sports and basketball and anti-Semitism and fascism together in a book for young people would, would be a no brainer for me. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's, it's a great formula because I love sports, but sometimes I find straight sports books to be a little too 
X's and O's a little right. too there there the heft isn't there for anyone with perspective in my opinion mm-hmm. uh, at least because I would rather watch the sports themselves and then read books about more in-depth things than read a book about just the sports and so that combination of learning about a time in history and a period and specifics around the context in which these players played or this person rose to fame is more interesting to me. And that's exactly what singled out does. I don't know that I would, I like baseball, probably not reading a whole book about a baseball player, unless there's more to it. Fergie Jenkins, I did an interview with him and he had a great book and Mm -hmm. I learned fascinating things. Like at one point while Fergie was on the Cubs, the black players couldn't stay in a lot of the same hotels as the white players. And they stayed in funeral homes. They stayed in brothels. So like, you know, you think about when you just hear about Fergie Jenkins and how many complete games he had and all these awards, and you don't imagine that the night before some big game you've read about, he's having to crash at a brothel or having to have food brought out to him on the bus because he can't actually go in a restaurant to eat it. Those are the stories that I think bring to life these players and what they've done so much better. So let's talk about Singled Out, the first openly gay MLB player and inventor of the high five, the true story of Glenn Burke. Um, The research in this is incredible. And you could tell you spoke to so many people who played with him, who coached him, who were close to him. Before we get into some of the details, I just want to ask what was most surprising to you, because I always find it fascinating when people decide, all right, this is my topic. And then over the course of learning and researching, discover it's it's entirely different or something that you that you never thought you'd come across. Right. Um, Well, thank you. First of all, I really enjoyed working on this book and the research is my favorite part of writing a book, you know, having a chance to interview people, to dig through files. I'm happy to like be looking at old newspapers all day. That's fun (laughs) for me. Um, So surprising parts about Glenn, uh, two things. One, um, what a phenomenal athlete he was other than a baseball player. Uh, He was a great basketball player. Uh, Rupert Jones, an ex-major leaguer, told me that Glenn was the best athlete he ever saw in any sport. As a guard, Glenn could leap so high that he could touch the top of the backboard. On his deathbed, he said his one regret in life was that he hadn't played in the NBA. You know, and a lot of people thought he probably would have been a better NBA basketball player than Major League Baseball player, which, you know, it's common to have phenomenal athletes. But at the time, Glenn was upending every stereotype about gay men in America. There was this idea that you couldn't possibly be a good athlete and be gay, you know, uh, in pop culture at that time. So Glenn totally destroyed that myth. And then the other thing about Glenn that surprised me was how popular he was with his Dodgers teammates. You know, you hear about him being run out of the game in just a couple of years. It was strictly the management that was really opposed to Glenn's presence. One of the people I interviewed for the book was Dusty Baker, and he talked about Glenn being the most popular guy on the team. And here's a rookie fourth outfielder <laughs> on a veteran laden team, you know, that's going to the world series and it's Glenn Burke that they're crying about when he's traded to the Oakland A's. And that really surprised me how popular Glenn was and the backing that he had uh, among his teammates. Yeah. I mean, it upends so many stereotypes beyond just his physical abilities. The idea that a gay teammate would be a distraction. The idea yeah, I loved that- writing a Right. That that it would be hard for other teammates to accept differences or or flamboyant dress or behavior or anything that we associate with that. And and he was a little bit stereotypical in those ways. I love the story about him wearing shoes with goldfish, live goldfish (laughs) in the heels. So he wasn't a guy. He was hiding it, but he wasn't hiding it by trying to fit in. He very much stood out in in his dress and his in his approach to life and his personality. Um, and they all love that about him. Yeah, he wore a red jock strap. Uh, he was the mm-hmm. one that would bring a boombox into the locker room. Um, he was the best dancer on the team. He could imitate Richard Pryor and other black comedians of the day. Um, Dusty told me there's two types of rookies on a team. There's the annoying one that you wish would go away. And then there's the one that brings a little bit of life and energy into the clubhouse. And that was Glenn, who kept things loose on a team that had a lot of expectations, a lot of pressure. And the idea of the distraction, like you hear about that with current players. Oh, if there's a gay player on the team, what a distraction that would be to the team. The Dodgers, Tommy Lasorda was inviting distractions into the clubhouse every day. He was inviting literally Don Rickles into the clubhouse to, to make jokes about the players minutes before playoff games. Frank Sinatra was in the clubhouse eating, you know, before in every game. So Lasorda himself 
was essentially a distraction on that team. And so Glenn was anything but uh, an unwelcome presence in the Dodger clubhouse. Yeah, that's the secret to success in baseball. It feels like I, you know, the Cubs World Series year, Joe Madden would have, you know, zoo day at the ballpark or pajama day. I, I always think about Jake Arietta's no hitter that he threw and everybody's wearing onesie pajamas in the celebratory <laughs> photos because it was, you know, pajama day. So it always go down as like, look at a little different than the average, you know, post-game no hitter celebrations. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Vivacious. Vivacious. Lively in temper, conduct, or spirit. Great word. From the 1640s, from Latin vivax, meaning lively, vigorous. Uh, So it's a word that has stayed true to meaning for hundreds of years. Love it. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is tamesis. Shout out to Corey Lenini, who wrote me on Twitter with this word. She said, tamesis is the only word in the English language that starts with the letters T-M. It's the act of breaking up compound words with other words like fan-freaking-tastic or just put that any old where. She's absolutely right. Tamesis, separation of parts of a compound word by the intervention of one or more words. Circa the 1580s from Greek tamesis, which means a cutting. And there are so many fun examples. Abso-freaking-lutely, whoop-de-damn-do. Let's hear it in a sentence. While there is no such word as nother, Tamesis allows us to say the far more pleasant, a whole nother, instead of the awkward and wrong-sounding, a whole other. Thank you, Tamesis. And thank you, Corey. Now let's get back to the interview. I want to go back a little bit, and I don't want to run through the whole book because, of course, I want people to read it, but I want to pull out some moments from it to just uh, talk about what a fascinating person and story Glenn Burks is. Um, his childhood is, is very interesting and not uncommon, especially for that time, essentially raised by a single mom. His dad wasn't around much in how he used the p- playground as this space to discover himself and to find out that he was great. But not just that. That's very normal. The idea that he was in chorus and ended up touching fame very early with chorus and a kid show. So tell me about those moments. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So Glenn was a star at Bushrod Park in the basketball games, but he was like Perry Wallace. We were just talking about what a well-rounded person he was. Glenn Burke was also, he had a beautiful voice and there was a folk group at the time called the Limelighters that were uh, recording a live album in the Bay area. And they scouted out elementary school kids at uh, the schools in Oakland and Berkeley and Glenn won a spot uh, singing on that album. And if you Google the Limelighters uh, children's album, I'm forgetting the name of the title of the album right now, but you can see little Glenn Burke uh, sitting there in his gold sweater as part of the crew of kids that sang on that. And he was a great singer, you know, the rest of his life. I talk about what a popular player he was with the Dodgers. I mean, singing and dancing and telling jokes. That was that was Glenn. Uh, he was always the life of the party uh, wherever he went. In some ways, later in his life, that got him into some tricky situations where he was so popular with the guys, they'd wonder, well, why are you leaving? (laughs) You know, we're all at the disco and all these girls are around, the women are around, like, where are you going, Glenn? And he he wanted to go to the gay bars in whatever city they happened to be in. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it created some problems for him later on. Uh, It was the Limelighters Through Children's Eyes, I believe, was the name of the album. Um, and then he ends up on a kid's show where his sister has written in to say that they can't afford a bike for him. And so her her big wish is that her brother would get a bicycle to go hang with all the other kids. And I love that he said on the show, you know, I will thank my sister for getting me this bike by letting her ride it and then never once did. Uh, <laughs> Typical brother, right? <laughs> conveniently forgot that once they got home and the bike was his. Um, tell me about the hoorah battles at Bushrod Park. Bushrod Park was the neighborhood park that he developed all of this athletic prowess at, but I, I love the idea. I've never heard of a hoorah battle. It's kind of like the dozens, I guess. Right. So uh, Glenn and his friends would just rip on each other, their moms, whatever. And yeah, Glenn was the best at that. I mean, the other thing that I love that, that Glenn did at the park, he was a great player, but he was also sort of a empathetic, uh, sensitive kid that was watching what was going around. And he noticed the other kids that were never getting picked to play. And Glenn would choose them for his team in these pickup basketball games. And he'd win the game, you know, and what a way to shut up all the other uh, like boisterous boasting kids at the park than to beat them with a bunch of scrubs, you know? And so Glenn took pride in that as well. 
It's very Michael Jordan switching teams once his team is up 13 to one and then coming all the way back to win with the team that he had just beaten. Um, love, right. love that. Um, so, yeah, he became known at a young age for incredible athletic prowess, also his charisma, but a bit of a temper, which if you start to recognize something different about yourself at a young age, or you just have this feeling that you can't put a finger on, plus the anger about his father's absence and some of the other things that went on in his life at the time, um, he was balancing this very charismatic uh, personality with with a temper. Um, So he, he becomes a fantastic basketball player and actually plays alongside some future NBA players. Yeah, Phil Chenier was a player at Berkeley High. Uh, there was a center Lambert that, on his team that played college basketball and later in the NBA as well. And so these guys all said that Glenn really had a future uh, in basketball if he wanted it. And in fact, the uh, NCAA changed its rules while Glenn was in the Dodgers minor league system to allow professional players in one sport to play collegiately in another. And so, um, you know, after a brief minor league career where it's been a couple years since the end of his high school days, Glenn goes and plays basketball at Nevada Reno and scores over 30 points in his first game. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought that was interesting that uh, I don't know if too many people make this connection, but that's where Kaepernick played also, you know, and so yeah. a couple, um, uh, you know, interesting players in uh, off the field came out of Nevada Reno, Glenn Burke and Colin Kaepernick. I have my own theory, and I wonder if you agree with it as to why, despite his incredible talents in basketball, baseball ended up being something he was willing to push at and pursue longer because he did go back to basketball for a bit before returning Mm -hmm. to baseball. And basketball was always his first love. He could do 360 dunks and had incredible physical ability. He would outplay players much taller and bigger than him. But in basketball, the coaching and the direction is constant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, from your from your coach, there's a, a new play every time down the court. There's direction that comes at you every moment of the game. Whereas baseball managers, of course, play a role, but there's a lot more. Once you know the game, there's a freedom just to exist within it. And I feel like potentially Glenn's the, where it didn't work for him in basketball was that need to not be contained or he didn't get along with authority. Well, I guess I should Certainly say didn't. Do you think that that's the reason that baseball ended up being the thing he pursued longer? Yeah, I think that's a really um, good insight. And especially when you're talking about college basketball, you know, in the, the program that a, co- a college coach tries to institute. And especially at that time in the seventies, the system that they would try to have. And Glenn wasn't someone that was going to operate well within a controlled system, you know, but, and then the other thing is he was getting paid to play baseball, you know, right. and I think that coming from a family that didn't have a whole lot of money, the fact that he was offered a baseball contract first, you know, really had a lot to do with it. And it's interesting too, because sometimes you think about basketball as the sport with a lot of freedom and baseball as a sport with less freedom, but being a minor league baseball player kind of off on your own um, did offer him a degree of freedom that he appreciated. Although when there were times where the manager would try to crack down on him, he was having none of it, you know, and he would, (laughs) he would talk right back to his coaches. Uh, He would steal third with two outs, you know, and and get up and tell the coach to shut up when they told him that wasn't good baseball. And so, um, yeah, Glenn and authority did not mix. You got that sense from anyone that I interviewed for the book. So before we get to his return to baseball in, in 75, so as you mentioned, he gets a minor league deal. And at first he doesn't want to come home from the park to even talk to anyone. His mom literally has to send his sister back, back over and over again to finally get him to come back. He doesn't want to talk to the Dodgers because he grew up a Giants fan and he ends up accepting the deal because of the money um, plays for a bit, goes back to basketball. And and before his return to baseball in 1975 to that double a team in Waterbury, a lot happens socially that sort of provides a context for the world in which he's living as a closeted gay man and a professional athlete in 1959. If you could just kind of set the stage of Cooper's donuts and then new year's Eve and the black cat and how that led up to Stonewall in 69. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to do in this book and with all my books is to tell the sports story in the context of the times and the place that these athletes or teams existed, you know, and so Glenn's life tracks very um, neatly with so many major points in the gay rights movement in the United States. So as you mentioned, 
as he's uh, growing up, you know, and really discovering who he is. He didn't necessarily realize that he was gay until he was in the minor leagues. You know, he had inklings that he was a little different, but couldn't put his finger on it. But as he's becoming a young man, you have these um, episodes across the country where gay customers at, at bars or restaurants are being harassed and beaten uh, by police officers. There's a general, uh, of course, uh, homophobia uh, just in the air around the country at that time. But there's specific incidents where um, uh, gay men and women are starting to stand up uh, publicly against the um, harassment and beatings that are taking place, leading up even to Stonewall. And so Glenn is uh, observing at least what's happening around the country in these ways and sees people standing up for themselves uh, in new and different and, and publicized ways. At the time that he's coming along as a um, minor leaguer and getting closer to making the Dodgers team, so he's playing in Vero Beach, Florida, Dodger Town. And in the state of Florida, uh, much like today, there is incredible uh, homophobia in the form of movements and legislation to strip rights away from gay men and women. And that's happening in Florida, where Anita Bryant, who is sort of seen as this all-American woman who was a runner-up for Miss America, and she's endorsing orange juice, you know, and, and she's leading the anti-LGBT uh, campaign in Miami just you know, a few hundred miles down the road from where Glenn is trying to make it as a baseball player. And that legislation in Miami would have stripped uh, gay people of their um, uh, right to a job. At the same time, Glenn's wondering, am I going to be able to have a job in baseball if people realize who I really am? Right. And so it makes his rise to the major leagues even more remarkable, understanding the context and the hate that he is seeing all around him and, the, and understanding that people you know, don't want gay men and women even to be teachers their own baseball players, you know, and, and how is the world going to react if, if they find out his secret? Yeah, there's this balance where gay men and women are being arrested simply for being gay. And then when arrested, they get labeled as predators. Right. And that is not based on their behavior. That's based solely on fear mongering around what it is to be gay. And that affected their ability to get apartments. It affected their ability to get jobs. So as you said, there was this deep seated fear of being discovered and how that might manifest. But that's happening simultaneously to this growing feeling of liberation and wanting to be proud and out. So there are raids at Cooper's Donuts and the Black Cat in 59 and 67. These like kind of historic moments of awful treatment uh, of gay people simply enjoying themselves out right. on the town and the police Just existing, attacking and 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 abusing them and 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 um, these horrific acts of violence, which lead to 1969 Stonewall and. Then in the years after Stonewall, the emergence of disco, which becomes not just about music, but about culture and representation and pride of your clothes and behavior and dance and nightclubs. So he's getting this call up to the bigs and he's, you know, right before that, like I said, returning to play in double A Dodgers uh, ball while these things are happening simultaneously. Should I yeah. be terrified of letting people know versus there are these spaces all around me, even in Waterbury, where he lives at the YMCA instead of regular housing so that right. he can participate in some of this, you know, gay activity that he's finally discovering is everywhere he goes. Yeah, there's such a dichotomy, like you mentioned. I mean, there and it's it's like today, too. Um if you want to call it polarization or, or whatever you want to call it, at the same time that there are these acts of violence against gay people, there is um, an ascendance also, you know, and I, I didn't have to include that chapter about disco in a book about a baseball player, but I thought that really symbolized so much of yeah. what was happening in the country at that time. And it gave me a chance to write about disco demolition yeah. night too, which was yeah. fun. Um, and then the, the Glenn notices that dichotomy even more pronounced because he's from the Bay area, you know, and that's where all uh, the, uh, the center of gay life in America at that time was happening right across the bridge from where he grew up. And in the off season, he's living in the Castro. I, when I was researching this book, I walked past the, the townhouse that he lived in and it was right around the corner from Harvey Milk's camera store. I mean, like Glenn was right in the middle of it. Yeah. And then imagine there wouldn't be too many uh, like uh, sectors of America at that time that would be more hostile to the idea of the presence of an out gay person than major league baseball or even minor league baseball. Yeah. Right. And so he, in the off season, he's living one life in the season, which is his livelihood. He can't fully be himself. And so just the tension that that would create inside of 
of a person. You talked earlier about the, the temper that would flare sometimes. I think it was unavoidable given the right. tensions that Glenn was living with. You mentioned sort of the sports world in particular, and it's similar now where there is so much less progress when it comes to being able to be out and proud and be an open gay man in professional sports. And there's a quote from the Twins PR director um, right around the time that he's returning to baseball in 75. And so there is a, a magazine that had mailed letters to major league teams requesting interviews with players, quote, living a gay lifestyle. This is what Uh, Your book reads, the request was meant to jolt the baseball establishment into acknowledging that there were indeed gay men playing the game. Editors were stunned by the hostility of the few replies they received, especially one from longtime Minnesota Twins public relations director Tom Mee. Quote from me, the cop-out immoral lifestyle of the tragic misfits espoused by your publication has no place in organized athletics at any level. Your colossal gall in attempting to extend your perversion to an area of total manhood is just simply unthinkable. And his rant ends up in this 1975 series of articles called Homosexuals in Sports by Lynn Rossellini of the Washington Star. And she writes, me is not the only one who loathes any suggestion of homosexuality in sports. For hundreds like him in the image conscious athletic establishment, homosexuality remains a fearsome, hateful aberration. So that's what's happening in the press and publicly in discussions of the potential of there being gay players in professional sport. And that's the space that he's in as he is simultaneously living at the Y so that he can. And by the way, that was three years before the song came out. So he was <laughs> really right. he was ahead of the game on knowing that the YMCA was a boy place where, you know, the men can play. Um <laughs> So a year later, he gets the call up to the bigs and not much has changed in terms of the discussions around it. In fact, going back to that landmark series on gay athletes by Lynn Rossellini, a New York doctor offered a theory as to why they didn't know of any out gay players in Major League Baseball. He said, quote, there is a fear of getting hurt by the ball, particularly in the genitals. Okay. Like it's so absurd. It reminds me of the of the claims that women shouldn't do sports because their uterus will fall out. Right, like right. the absurdities, the pseudoscience that was offered up by actual doctors or people who allege to be experts. Um, so take me to this moment. He gets called up to the bigs and Stonewall, Anita Bryant, Harvey Milk. All of this is happening. Um, how does he find success despite having to sort of live this dual life? Well, it's remarkable that he found any success. And there's some Glenn Burke haters out there on Twitter that will say he was never a good player. But think about everything that he had to deal with, the lack of support uh, that he could just sense all around him in the air every day. And he actually had um, sort of competing views on how he could survive uh, in baseball. On one hand, he thought, well, I'm going to have to be the best player on any team that I ever play on. And then if people find out, they're going to have to deal with it. You know, they're not going to get rid of the best player. On the other hand, he thought, maybe I just need to be mediocre and keep the spotlight off of me. Mm. And that's how I'll be able to kind of just hide and exist and be on on the team, but no one really paying too much attention to me. And, you know, what other aspiring major league player or athlete or professional in any job is aspiring to be mediocre and thinking that's the best way to hang in there? You know, that's the best route for me. Right. You're not going to make it too long in the major leagues if you don't want to be that good. Right. Yeah, Um, but that's always sort of in the back of his mind as he's trying to make it. And then, like you've mentioned before, the managers and higher ups in baseball are oftentimes not playing him or making excuses for why they aren't giving him the time he may be earned because of his his homosexuality that started to become more and more known. Um, You know, I there's a couple moments in the book that I really just think people need to read the ties to Nike and the oh, vendor yeah. that he knew, that's incredible. That is sort of how Nike becomes much more of a brand, especially in baseball. His relationship with Tommy Lasorda's son, who I had not heard about, but who was very flamboyant and out gay, mm-hmm. even though Lasorda would never acknowledge that publicly. Um, tell me quickly about the moment where he gets offered essentially a full year's salary, quote unquote, bonus right. to get married and go on a honeymoon from, yeah. from the team. So this is, you know, Glenn, his teammates, especially those who had played in the minor leagues with him, were on to his secret that he was gay. And then when he arrives with the Dodgers uh, full time, he becomes friends with Tommy Lasorda Jr., Spunky Lasorda, who is um, 
by all accounts, essentially flamboyantly gay, uh, although, like you said, his dad would never admit it later and uh, did not admit that his son had died of AIDS. Glenn was friends with Spunky. Uh, so it's, it's known throughout the organization now, including management, um, who Glenn is. And in the 1977 season, Glenn has played quite a bit. Rick Monday, the starting center fielder, had a bad back. Glenn got a lot of playing time because of that. In the playoffs against the Phillies, Glenn started both games when Steve Carlton, the lefty pitch for Philadelphia, game one of the World Series at Yankee Stadium. Glenn starts in center field. So here's a guy that they think enough of to play significant innings uh, in the postseason. After that season, uh, Al Campanis, the general manager of the Dodgers, schedules a meeting with Glenn. And Glenn thinks it's to talk about his uh, increased role on the team in 78. Instead, Campanis shows up at the meeting and says, Glenn, you know, uh, we like our players uh, to be married. You know, we feel like it, it calms them down. Uh, they're not out partying quite as much. So we'd like you to get married. And Glenn said, to a woman? <laughs> and when, uh, <laughs> imagine that conversation. When, when Campanis said yes, Glenn said, no, I'm not going to do it. And Campanis says, well, we'll pay you uh, $75,000 for a nice honeymoon. <laughs> which would be a heck of a honeymoon, now, a honeymoon. Alone, yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1977. And so Glenn realizes that they're really attempting to bribe him to cover up his sexuality. The Dodgers thought that it, much like the Minnesota Twins, that it would be a, a, a public relations problem, quote unquote, if it was known they had a gay player on the team. And so this really, when Glenn refuses to go along with the bribe, you know, in, in the book, I placed that in the context of other ways that gay people in the country were, were standing up against the homophobia and the hate that they right. were experiencing. Glenn knew this was going to be the end of his days uh, with the Dodgers if he didn't go along with it. And that turns out to be true by the spring training uh, leading into the 78 season. There's articles and these sports writers don't know necessarily that Glenn's gay, but, but they're figuring out that the Dodgers really have soured on him. And they're talking about how he's probably going to be traded and this is even before the season starts, and he is traded early in that season uh, to the Oakland A's. And that's when I was told Don Sutton and Steve Garvey were sitting at their lockers crying over the fact that Glenn's been traded. And here's a um, shows you how Glenn brought that team together, that a gay black player, it's Steve Garvey and Don Sutton, who you kind of think of as pretty straight narrow, uh, <laughs> straight arrows on that team. Right in some ways, um, were actually crying at their lockers. Glenn brought everybody together. Yeah, his incredible effect on the team was made clear at every team he was on throughout the book. And that's something you, you talked about at the beginning that was such a surprise was to learn that he was so popular amongst all of his teammates to the point of them crying when he's when he's traded. We're running out of time here. There's so much more to get to, but you, you talked about him getting traded to the A's. I didn't know half the things about Charlie Finley, both good and bad. What a wild and crazy owner he was and the different ideas he had that were both good and bad. Um, right. And then Stanley Burrell, a.k.a. MC Hammer, who, you know, Charlie Finley discovers dancing for quarters and ends up making him, uh, I believe the, the job title was executive VP, right. but he's just a kid and he ends up growing up to be MC Hammer. We find out how he got his nickname and what a life. How do we not have a, a book or a movie about MC Hammer's life? Maybe yet? that should I mean, be the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, what an incredible start. And then to become the superstar and I believe, you know, go broke and find Jesus and all the other things that MC Hammer has done. I mean, we need we need that. We need that doc. Um, but I need to ask before we go about the high five, because I actually randomly at a wedding in Italy, probably 12 years ago now, we started high fiving drunkenly about something in particular that led us on the internet of trying to discover who invented the high five. You did really? And yes. Like we, we had a joke with a friend and I believe it was, I was teaching people the trick of, if you look at the opposing person's elbow, when you high five, you'll always have a good high five. I'm not sure if you're aware of that trick. Oh, I wasn't aware so of that. When you hold your hand up, if you look at their elbow instead of their hand, you will always connect on a perfect high five. So okay. uh, everybody put that into practice out in the world. But so we Google and I'm sure I must have found out about Glenn Burke inventing it then, but I didn't know who he was or anything about him. So tell everyone how do you know with the for a fact that the high five and it being called that and then the Dodgers turning it into advertising was the work of uh, of Glenn. Yeah. So it's the last month of the 1977 season. Dodgers have three players who have already hit 30 or more home runs. They need Dusty Baker, who's 
stuck on 29 to hit one more and they'll become the first major league team ever with four players with 30 homers. And so this is like out of a movie. It, it takes until the last game of the season and Dusty is still stuck on 29. They're playing the Astros. J.R. Richard is pitching, throwing 100 miles an hour. Dusty's certain he's just not going to do it. But in his next to last at bat of the game, he does it. He hits a home run over the left field fence. Glenn Burke happens to be on deck. And Glenn being the type of guy he is, like we've talked about, life of the party, excited, supportive of his teammates. The crowd's going crazy. As Dusty passes him running back to the dugout, uh, Glenn raises his arm above his head and Dusty slaps it. And so you could say, well, it takes two people to invent the high five. But I interviewed Dusty for the book and he told me, well, pretty much anything that's cool and different in life has come out of the Bay Area. And that's where Glenn's from. So you got to give him credit for inventing it. <laughs> and so there are uh, the Dodgers make something of this. It's kind of like the Oakland A's later with the Bash brothers and their forearm yeah. bashes, right? The Dodgers, uh, Fred Clare, uh, marketing guy at the time for the Dodgers, coins the term high five. And they end up putting it on the scoreboard, like with their trivia contest. And they'll explain to the fans how to do it. If they get the question right to congratulate them, you raise your arm and you push it towards the, it's really <laughs> funny to, to see like this right. <laughs> mechanics explained of the high five and they, yeah. they put it on their program the next year. There's posters. Of course, they remove Glenn from the picture. They have a picture of Steve Garvey high-fiving Dusty Baker and they get rid of Glenn, the guy that invented it. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's an interesting wrinkle to that story, but there's others that over the years, I think Louisville basketball has claimed to invent the high five. And of course, someone might have done it, the action prior to that thousands of years ago, but it was the Dodgers that coined the term high five and, and credit Glenn with inventing it. So cool. There's so many great stories in the book like that. There's so many great moments where you, like you mentioned, kind of look at the parallels of disco demolition and how many disco albums were top of the charts and, and while Glenn is enjoying his starting role and then he's out of the game at the same time as all of a sudden disco is dead. And there's a lot of cultural parallels that, that go on. And I think later in the book, uh, without giving too much away, there's, there's a very tragic end to his life. You know, he gets heckled and fights a guy in the parking lot after a game. He, St struggles to find a place with the A's where he's sort of frozen out by his teammates, his manager, sports writers start to figure it out. Nobody really knows how to handle it, especially after Harvey Milk's murder and the, the you know, demonstrative acts against homosexuals. Then the AIDS crisis hits and it is so much harder to be a gay man in the Bay Area instead of the joyful you know, free love sort of situation. There's so much fear and sickness. And um, there is a sort of redeeming moment for baseball in the form of Sandy Alderson and a longtime A's employee, Pamela Pitts, who are called to help Glenn late in his life. But truly the end of his life and everything post-baseball is, is very tragic and sad. And it brings me back, since we're running out of time, to that point you had earlier, which is that we often will later on talk in such glowing terms about the people who have to be groundbreakers and culture changers. And we rarely acknowledge just how much pain and suffering they must endure in order to make those, those changes. And, you know, unfortunately for Glenn Burke, for all that he went through and all of his struggles, it didn't change culture enough for us to have an openly gay player in baseball now, all of these decades later. And I wonder, and, you know, recently we've seen in the news, some baseball teams um, having pride patches on their uniforms or having drag queens at pride night and these moments that feel so embracing of the culture and so much more welcoming than even just a few years ago. But you have simultaneously to that some race players who offer up saying, I won't wear this because I don't agree with the lifestyle, which is such an antiquated way to talk about LGBTQIA plus people mm -hmm. and to say, you know, love the sin or hate the sin, which still is rooted in hate all these years later. Um, what do you think would need to change in order for sports, which seems like the last bastion of pretending that gay people don't exist to finally be a place that that could be more open? Yeah, well, um, it's a great question. And all those insights, you know, I, I was thinking back when you read the quote from the Minnesota Twins PR exec, which is incredibly homophobic. It's really the still way a lot of people feel right now. You know, um, for example, my book on Glenn would be outlawed in a lot of states right now in terms of 
of being available for, for well, that's kids a great to read. point jesus Ugh. you know um there's people running for school board where i live right now running against uh normalizing quote unquote lgbtq in schools is what the person said and against crt this mythical issue right so right. these issues are still Critical with us theory, yeah yeah um one thing that perry wallace the subject of my first book told me was that reconciliation without truth is just acting and a lot of times companies, schools, businesses, teams want to have this happy photo op to show, well, things aren't the way that they used to be. Look at us now. But if it's just a photo op and there's really no deeper discussion beneath that, then it's just for show. But if the truth is present, then you have a chance for education and for healing and for progress. Right. And so I think in terms of how Glenn is treated by Major League Baseball right now, it needs to move from beyond just attaching his name to a pride night or beyond selling caps with the rainbow on them and really digging into the issues of why was Glenn treated this way in the past? How do we make sure that that doesn't happen in the future? And I think beyond that, it's, it's doing that with the entire culture, you know, and people not accepting a school board member that's banning books about uh, gay figures or subjects in school, because there's kids sitting in that classroom who either are gay or have the potential to either be an ally or a harasser, right? right? And so it's really important that we talk about these issues rather than pretending they don't exist, like you said, like pretending these people don't exist or that these problems don't exist in our culture. It's, a, it's all related to just other threats we see against women, threats against democracy right now. And it's all about making sure the truth is present and dealing with the truth instead of avoiding it. Yeah. And stories like this, um, nuanced conversations are the key to all of it. And unfortunately, we've gotten into the habit of either uh, only reading headlines or believing everything we read, regardless of source or vetting. And it allows misinformation campaigns to be given the same weight as truly researched and thoughtful conversations about about these issues that are so polarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is a fantastic book, and I learned a ton about uh, baseball and, and the history of, of gay rights in America and everything else. It was really, and, and the AIDS crisis as well, really fascinating um, book. And I look forward to the next one coming up in September. Give people a quick tease on inaugural ballers. All right. So inaugural ballers is the story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team which played at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Uh, had players like Pat Head Summit was a player on that team, Nancy Lieberman, Ann Myers, Lucy Harris, who was the subject of that Oscar-winning documentary yeah. that Shaq and Steph Curry produced. And it's told in the context also of what's going on in the 1970s, but the women's rights movement, Title IX, ERA. And so it's time to come out this year with this being the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. I'm really excited to read that. Maybe we'll have to have you uh, back on to talk about that. That'll be out in uh, September. Um, I could talk to you for even longer. I'm so fascinated by all this stuff, but uh, thank you so much for coming on and hopefully people will go check out this book, Singled Out, the true story of Glenn Burke and uh, read about not only history, but baseball. And I think a lot of characters that people will recognize stories that they will have known a little bit about, but get a lot more in depth uh, throughout the book um, will be really fascinating, regardless of whether you would, you know, pick it up because you're a Dodgers fan or a Glenn Burke fan. So. Thank you, Sarah. You know, I'm I'm just like in a lot of ways, a sports fan, like a lot of your uh, listeners. And it's, I always, uh, follow you on Twitter and listen to you on the radio, (laughs) your podcast. So it's been a thrill for me to have a chance to talk to you. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. This is the place for rants, raves, everything in between. Sometimes I'll tell you what to read, watch, listen to. Sometimes I'll complain about something, whatever's on my mind. And this week, I want you to listen to fantastic reporter Jenny Vrentas on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, from July 27th. You can inform yourself about the Deshaun Watson case and also read her story in the New York Times entitled How the Texans and a Spa Enabled Deshaun Watson's Troubling Behavior. Uh, I'm taping this as the sports world is reacting to Deshaun Watson's meager six-game suspension, and many seem not to know the details of his alleged sexual assault offenses, uh, and yet they are determined to speak about the case. Well, Jenny has done a fantastic job covering it, so please read and listen to her so you don't continue victim-blaming or spreading misinformation about Watson and what happened. Um, As for me, I'll just let this clip from Around the Horn today sum up my thoughts on the ruling. 
there's two things that stand out to me. One is the new process. And I've realized over the course of the day that it's probably a sham to try to convince us that Roger Goodell and the NFL are no longer judge, jury, and executioner by telling us that there's an independent judge paid by both sides. When in fact, that made the NFL essentially the prosecution in this, which means that a league that has a horrific record on sexual violence and caring about women is the one expected to present a compelling case about the acts of this man and why he should be punished. So we're given the rigmarole as if this independent judge is the one making decisions, but her decision was mostly based on precedent. And when your base level suspension for this kind of act is six games, more often three in history for what they deem nonviolent occasions, then you've set up this judge to make a ruling based on precedent that is woefully not matched to the crimes that were alleged to have happened. She said he committed sexual assault and did it intentionally, and yet she was bound by the precedent to only give him six games, which is more than anyone has gotten before for what she deems nonviolent sexual assault, which to Clinton's point is a subjective decision that not only is based on her, what I think faulty logic, that physical violence in some way is a more egregious act than the results of sexual assault, but also is bound by the NFL's idea of what's in the CBA. So the language needs to change in the CBA, the baseline punishment needs to change in the CBA, and then in the end we have to ask why we continue to allow ourselves to be tricked by the NFL that they care at all when you find out that only four cases were heard, only 12 women were spoken to, and those women were asked what they were wearing and victim blamed and accused of being complicit mm -hmm. in their own victimization. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you got guest suggestions, dilemmas, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, follow or subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give it a nice review. You might end up on the pod. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.